What is up, y'all? What is up, Ansel? I am super, super excited for this episode of FedWatch. We have Danielle Booth, former advisor to the Dallas Fed president. She is a fantastic commentator in all things macro and has quite a big following and reach. So uh, we are really honored that she would come on to FedWatch and to talk to us Bitcoiners um, about everything that's happening in the world. The way that we're going to be doing this show is like what you guys expect, um, our updates on what's happening in macro, Fed, Europe, all that good stuff. Uh, and then we're going to go to the interview with Danielle. Um, before we get into all of that, just want to do a quick shout out to Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, we are constantly pumping out Bitcoiner and BTC first content. Uh, take a look at Bitcoin magazine.com take a look at bitcoin magazine on youtube and on twitter we are a full shop team of bitcoiners just trying to put out good content to onboard new people and to keep bitcoiners entertained and informed uh so make sure to check out bitcoin magazine all right yeah very exciting episode here danielle was awesome to talk to yeah bitcoin dictionary that came out august 1st bitcoin independence day happy independence day for everybody out there i know bitcoin magazine did a big Big live stream, that's right, um, on the day. And yeah, I released the Bitcoin Dictionary. It's a, a, over 180 terms, definitions, and explanations. And that came out for Kindle on the first. And the paperback will be following shortly. Check it out on Amazon. We should read out a definition on a future show just to give the listeners a taste of these thorough Bitcoin terms that Ansel teases out. Yeah, on my member newsletter, I do a, a word of the day each issue. So I break out one of the 180 terms and just put it in there for people because, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I think the Bitcoin dictionary compresses um, a lot of years of, of study into just, a, I think it came out to be 95 pages on Kindle. So, uh, yeah, after 95 pages, you have years, you've downloaded years worth of knowledge into your brain. Let's go. I, I love me that Ansel Linder knowledge. So uh, thanks for co-hosting the show. And let's just dive straight into uh, the recent news updates. Uh, I know you wanted to share your screen. Check us out on YouTube so you can see these screen shares. So the, the updates the updates are going to be, and just going through the FOMC statement from last week, you know, every month or two, I don't know the exact how many they have every year, but they have meetings roughly every month and they have statements at the end of those meetings where they detail out their decisions. They, they uh, tell you their rulings of the plebs. They tell the plebs what the interest rates are going to be and stuff like that. But uh, so yeah, the bottom line is they held the interest rates at zero or they're going to hold the target rate at zero and they're going to also hold their QE asset purchases at uh, steady. So they're not going to move them up or down that, they don't see any need to do that now. I'm going to share my screen and just wanted to pull out a couple sentences because I think it gets into, I mean, I would like to have the discussion of why they're doing this. So maybe, maybe you can give me your thoughts. Um, the, the headline sentence for their two big paragraphs in their statement um, have to do with the coronavirus. So I just want to read those. The coronavirus outbreak is causing tremendous human and economic hardship across the United States and around the world. 
And the second one is the path to economic recovery will depend significantly on the course of the virus. And we note, we noted this when we listened to Powell testify in front of Congress that all these, um, Congress people were, it almost was like they're reading off a card. Thank you for your hard work in this health crisis, the, the coronavirus crisis. And uh, they're, they're just really laying it on thick, in my opinion, blaming the crisis. And I think that that fulfills two goals for them. The first one is we know that this, uh, this crisis started way before March, right? We've looked at the numbers. It started at least in September of 2019. If we go back, uh, gold bottomed in late 2018. The emerging markets were having a lot of currency issues in spring of 19. Bitcoin jumped in spring of 19. And so there, there was some signs of stress in the system and a crisis brewing um, way before March. But they want to blame this crisis. And that is uh, for two reasons, again, because once they the numbers start improving, they're hoping that people take that as like, oh, the crisis is over, disregarding the underlying cause, right, of uh, too much credit in the system, bad credit, deflationary pressures. So they'll get back to borrowing and spending and all that stuff once the virus numbers improve. And the second task that this virus, blaming the virus does for them, is that they people would lose confidence in the Fed in general if uh, they knew that this was just the typical cycle we go through every seven to 10 years. There's a deflationary pressure, deflationary type of crisis. You know, is this all the Fed can do? So they blame a virus to kind of hide the fact that this is just built into the system. It makes sense that the Fed would would want to blame the virus. I mean, I think that that's probably more of the reality is the Fed just has no control whatsoever. So, I mean, I'm not surprised I mean, I've been listening to uh, to Jeff Snyder for a while, so I've kind of believed, you know, everything that you're saying for a while. So again, I think that they're just kind of confirming. Well, remember what Janet Yellen said that there wasn't going to be another crisis in our lifetimes, and now there is. And if it was just a typical crisis of the cycle, business cycle or whatever, um, it would make them look completely inept. So I think they have to blame the virus to save face to save any confidence in the Fed at all. Um, But yeah, anyway. Okay, should we move on to the ECB? So this is just a quick update on the ECB. I I don't know if I need to share my screen for this. Bottom line is the German Constitutional Court found that uh, the ECB actions were actually illegal under German law and that they forbade the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank, from being involved in this and supporting this. Uh, there was, we reported on it, lots of people reported on it, but we were waiting for something to come of this, uh, and now we, we get the results here. So the Bundesbank simply took the view that they had fulfilled the demands of the court, and that's it. The court has no, like, enforcement power, right? They can only make rulings, and the Bundesbank said, well, we've met your burden, so that's it, end of story. There was also a comment here from um, ECB officials. They concluded at their June policy meeting that asset purchases are an adequate tool with chief economist Philip Lane arguing that all of the ECB's buying schemes are, quote, proportionate measures for pursuing price stability. So they just ruled, like arbitrarily said, nope, we're in charge. 
get know your role, German court. Uh, we've already been over this. German court said that this QE is unconstitutional according to German law. Uh, gave the ECB 90 days. Now the ECB said, no, it's fine. It's part of our mandate of price stability. Go away. That's currently where we stand. Yeah, and also the Bundesbank is playing along with the ECB. The, the Bank of Germany of... Ha- is is saying, no, this is fine. So it's really the German court are opposing it. Bank of Germany and the ECB, the European Central Bank, are on the same team. Yes, and also the German parliament. Uh, they said that they support the ECB as well. Back, um, I believe it was in the middle of July. So the German court's kind of out there all by themselves in this decision, and what are they going to do? How are they going to enforce it? Um, no, they have no way of enforcing it without at least Germany behind it. I'm curious, like, right. what's the sentiment of the people? Oh, I, I don't know. I think everybody's uh, really hurting economically. Um, there's, you know, obviously economic pain around the world. We're starting into a depression. So um, I don't know. I think they, people just look at this purchase program and um, maybe they want it. Um, We'll see. Of course, there's the hardline. Some there's some hardline elements in Europe uh, that are more fiscally responsible, um, but they probably look at this situation and are like, "Well, this is this is how they're going to treat us." So maybe it will push down this uh, the revolutionary uh, type of feelings in some of these countries and put it on the back burner for a while. But I don't think it gets rid of it. I think there's still a lot of pressures that could build up um, over the next, you know, six months to a year. But for the near future, I think this kind of on the back burner. I want to continue to follow the narrative of no, no inflation without representation coming out of Europe. Uh, I don't know when that's going to become a rallying cry, but I feel like that's definitely something that, uh, you know, it it is a pain point that is revealing itself, you know, especially with like this court case, but uh, you know, more generally just across Europe. Um, I think this is a good transition point to, you mentioned, you know, the sentiment of people in Europe and Germany, they may see this as agree with these central bankers that this is the virus's fault and that this is necessary to save the economy. Um, Europe just passed a stimulus package despite Germany, uh, German courts. And uh, it seems like the Euro is performing well off of that news. Um, do you want to talk about the Euro in, in uh, terms of dollars? Yeah. So, um, a lot of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, attention to the falling DXY, uh, Euro dollar index, and the rising Euro over the last several weeks. Um, it looked like the Euro could drop below some like really key support um, at around 105 um, to the dollar. But then it, they had this recovery plan. And ever since then, the, the Euro has been straight up. Um, I just wanted to call this out and say, you know, don't uh, believe any like short-term price movements. Um, I'm a big proponent of Jeff Schneider's take and, you know, the, um, a rising Euro doesn't necessarily mean that the, the dollar is getting weaker. It just means that there is some movements, um, in the interbank market that's making these, these exchange rates move. So, uh, don't buy into this. 
I, I have no expertise to add to you or Jeff Schneider. Uh, it's interesting to see the connection between stimulus and uh, increase in prices. When the big U.S. stimulus was going out, the dollar was just crushing everything. Now that the stimulus packages are wrapping up, we'll see if there's a point two uh, that, that comes out. But uh, Europe is now passing a new round of stimulus, and we're seeing their their currency rally. I feel like you you pointed at this before. Is there something inherently bullish around uh, these stimulus packages when it comes to like the currency value or speculation on the currency? I noticed that several years ago um, when the when Europe would do a new stimulus package or they change their stimulus packages or their quantitative easing that they were doing, they'd increase it. The euro would spike and the dollar would fall because um, it, it has to do with like people's expectations. So if you are doing stimulus, they expect the economy to improve. And so that currency is going to strengthen. Um, when the, if you know, the, the Fed or, or the U.S. government comes out and does another stimulus package, most likely the dollar will rally because of people's expectations that things will get better. Perhaps it will work this time. And so, you know, the, the currency strengthens. Um, that's what I see all around. But look, the dollar is still unquestionably the dominant currency out there. There's nothing set up to take anything away from the dollar um, in like international settlement or international trade, in international payments. So uh, the dollar is here to stay until something comes comes around naturally to take that place. And I believe it's probably a Bitcoin type uh, standard. Uh, I think you agreed there too, but uh, nothing has grown out there right now to take the place of the dollar. Yeah, well, I think, again, this is a good place to transition. Uh, we both agree that Bitcoin could be that standard, but our guest, Danielle Booth, could not disagree more with that. She flat out says that nothing will replace gold and she almost kind of indicates that Bitcoin is like out, like the millennial generation's attempt at scarcity, but they will never replace gold. That's like her sentiment. Ultimately, I think Danielle is a hard money person. She just, yes. you know, hasn't bought into Bitcoin quite yet. I thought this was a fantastic interview. She has some strong opinions on a lot of subjects and we dove into pretty much everything you can think of macro. All right. So Danielle DiMartino Booth, she is the CEO and chief strategist of Quill Intelligence. She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And she was working at the Dallas Fed, as you talked about, as an, advi as, as an advisor to Dallas uh, Fed President Richard Fisher during 2008-2009 in the great financial crisis. So she has a lot of experience. So let's get into the interview. Danielle, uh, I've been listening to your commentary for a few years. We're excited to talk to you. Welcome to FedWatch. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great name, FedWatch. I do a lot of that. <laughs> well, we uh, wanted to start with your broad view, your 20,000-foot uh, view of the current economic situation. Uh, so we've had, uh, we've had two weeks in a row of rising initial jobless claims. Uh, we're seeing continuing claims rise. So uh, there, there seems to be a lot of letters in this world to describe economic cycles. It seems to be all the rage. So I would say that we're at the beginning of the W. So we're, uh, the economy uh, mathematically came roaring back in the second quarter, and I think we're sliding back into recession now. 
When you say the economy came roaring back, are you talking more specifically about the stock market or the economy in general? Well, I think a lot of the metrics that we follow, right? The the, the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index that gauges uh, how the, the, the surprise factor, whether it's an upside or a downside surprise, it got to a record high because your ISM was like, wow, look at the V-shape, your, your housing. Um, but, but again, if you're going to drop to the depths that we drop to, you know, we, we know that second quarter GDP dropped by 32.9%. It's kind of a biblical decline. You know that any type of reopening impulse, macroeconomically speaking, is going to produce what looks to be a V. So that's when I, that, that's when I say roaring back in, in the second quarter. That's as opposed to, you know, dissolving into nothing, into a greater depression. So again, there was a there. It, it, a lot of it is just math. So, are you expecting that to continue? Are you expecting the Fed to be able to manufacture a complete V-shaped recovery, or are you thinking it's going to be more of an L-shaped non-recovery? No, I think right now, like I said, I think we're heading into a W a, a double dip recession right now. Um, so, for, for for the average man on the street, woman on the street, it, it might feel a lot more like an L. Uh, but for a lot of restaurant owners, let's say, for example, you know, who who reopened and that now they've had to reclose their restaurants and some of her are, are closing for good. Uh, you know, this has been as, as devastating as can be. The L would certainly be more appropriate for a lot of the businesses that are going bankrupt, liquidating, closing, however you want to put it. Uh, but the Fed has engineered a rebound in risky asset prices, uh, but we have to bear in mind that the Fed's balance sheet in the trillions is a reflection of what they've done for investors, for Wall Street. The Main Street lending program was, I believe, $14 million. Uh, so they're, they're doing a whole lot of nothing in terms of engendering an economic recovery unless you believe that the stock market is the economy, which many Americans would not. Playing devil's advocate on that, um, I've seen a lot of arguments about the stock market kind of becoming a new savings technology. And as savings rates go up, people are just, you know, trying to find yield. They're trying to save in a way that, you know, can make a difference into their lives. And so they're dumping money into the stock market. Do you see that continuing or like what's your assessment of that statement? Well, we definitely have record retail participation that even puts 1999 and 2000 in the dust. Uh, 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 but, and, and the best part about it is these are young investors, so they can afford to lose everything because they've got the rest of their lives in front of them to understand that the stock market is never a savings vehicle. That is the most naive perception I have ever heard. What young investors need to understand is that saving is actually saving and that the return you get on your savings is then reflected in how you in how you design your portfolio. But the stock market as a savings vehicle is a fallacy. But again, all of these Robin Hoodies, all of these young investors who are playing the stock market and running the stock of Kodak up by thousands of percent and running after oil when it's going negative. And I mean, it's extremely entertaining to watch from somebody who's been in the market markets for decades, but I think that this will actually benefit the youngest investors who are doing this because they will get an early lesson in life about how very badly the stock market can burn them. But again, they've got the rest of their careers in front of them to understand that saving and investing are completely divorced from one another. 
Okay, so let's jump into 2009. During 2009, the epicenter of the crisis really kind of revolved around mortgage-backed securities, uh, especially subprime and kind of toxic um, assets on that front. Where do you think the epicenter is of this crisis? Uh, and then as a follow-on to that question, if you could comment on you know, where real estate plays into this crisis. Obviously, subprime was where it was last time around. You were able to see a massive run-up in household debt to GDP. This time, it has been in the corporate sector. And if you liken the triple B slice of the investment-grade bond market, you get to around the same level dollar-wise as you had during subprime, about $3 trillion to $3 trillion. But if, if you will, if you want to look at it as a percentage of GDP, as we used to look at household debt to GDP in the run-up to the subprime crisis, uh, non-financial debt as a percentage of GDP was 74% as of the end of 2019. That was a record level of leverage in across the corporate business spectrum, non-financial. And now that we have seen the decline that we have and and non-financial debt increased by 2.5 trillion dollars in the first half of 2020, we've now got that ratio closer to 95%. So nothing in the history of the country has ever seen uh, businesses as, as buried in debt as they are right now. So it is the corporate sector that will be the epicenter of the current credit crisis, as opposed to what you rightly point out as the household sector. Now, how does real estate play into this? Real estate, unfortunately, has been viewed uh, by many investors as kind of a hard asset class, a way to diversify themselves away from publicly traded investments. The problem with real estate is that it acts beautifully as a hedge as long as the economy is in a recovery state and, 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 and expanding. During times of disruption, during times of contraction, real estate becomes pro-cyclical. So it's going to move in the same direction as the rest of your portfolio. Now, because COVID has compressed time as it has, we've seen the cycles for real estate that normally would be lagged by maybe 18 months or so. We've seen time compress and a massive amount of stress emerge in commercial real estate that is causing real problems in the here and now because of the manner in which the economy was forcibly shut down. So whether you're talking about lodging or retail, even office and multifamily, we're seeing delinquencies uh, move up at a very, very fast pace. That being said, it is one of the few areas that the Fed has not completely intervened in uh, that being real estate. So there are there are pockets of opportunity for distressed investors. Do you view this as a, a process? Like, so it, there's a different, this time around, it's uh, the corporate side. Uh, 2009 was the mortgage-backed security side. Do you uh, see a connection between those? Is it a continuing process that started in 2008 where it's re-emerging as a corporate problem today? And can it be fixed and then maybe it reappears 10 years again from now as a different, maybe a sovereign debt crisis or something like that. Do you see a, uh, this as like a process, a bigger process? You could look at it as a process that started in 1987 and each time the Fed has had to intervene in order to backstop investor losses, which is effectively what they do. They've had to be lower for even longer. And each time the bubble manifests in a different form, if you will, Uh, if it is going to be a sovereign debt bubble that we're looking at over the next decade or so, then you're talking about the resolution of such uh, a, a 
process. You're talking about the end of a process. And that is assuming that confidence in central banking holds to push us through an entire another, another decade, which would, if that is the case, presumably end in something akin to a debt jubilee. Yeah, debt jubilee, end of a process. Um, yeah, that, so that goes to my next question is, um, do we need a Bretton Woods 2.0? Like, does this end in five to 10 years with a revamping of the entire monetary system in a Bretton Woods type uh, scenario? So um, I, I'm going to jump ahead here. Uh, because of how the Fed has established its ability to intervene in markets that are prohibited by the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 by setting up special purpose vehicles on the Treasury's balance sheet, uh, I think that we would sooner arrive at a plaza accord whereby uh, hopefully uh, rational people in Congress, which is an oxymoron, uh, step in and and force there to be a redivision between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 stipulates that the Fed must be apolitical, an independent federal agency, and that means that there should not be any control on the part of the Treasury, which has, uh, you've now seen those two come together uh, which is a big no-no, and I think the separation would bring us back to more like a plaza accord of 1951. As Bitcoiners and sound money people, you know we've been expecting uh, weakness in the dollar, and that actually that might be an understatement. We've been expecting hyperinflation in the dollar. So, uh, but over the last two years, I've been really, really convinced by uh, Brett Johnson and the dollar milkshake. Uh, Jeff Schneider and euro dollar, you know, the mechanics of the euro dollar system. Where do you see the dollar? Um, I see it as like a deflationary environment. Um, what do you see out there? Well, dollar is obviously, I mean, that, that, that's the trickiest part of the equation because if you're going to see persistent dollar weakness, then you are talking about, you're talking about much bigger issues. Uh, if, you, if we are going to see inflation, again, you start, to, uh, you start to deviate from talking about a cold war, talking about a currency war, into something much more daunting, much more hot war-ish, much more troops on the ground. Uh, and I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic about this, but because we know that Europe is in worse shape, because we know that Europe, Europe's banking system was never cleaned up to the same extent that ours, that the, that, the, that the U.S. banking system was in the aftermath of the Great Financial Crisis, because we know that, that that Japan has its own idiosyncratic internal massive debt uh, situation, we know the yen is also not a candidate, and we know that the yuan has absolutely no uptick at all. In order for you to talk about the long-term weakness of the dollar, there has to be a presupposition that it can be replaced by something. Where we are right now is not we're not in that place. And it, it doesn't benefit China to, to, to pull the nuclear option, to liquidate their treasury portfolio at a time when China's economic growth is a three-decade low. So they would end up hurting themselves worse than they would hurting us. So it would be political and economic suicide on the part of the Chinese. So as much as we would like to think that we are at that moment, 
I think that it would take something more along the lines of a modern monetary theory, a socialism type of political system in the United States, not 25, but call it $50 trillion of U.S. debt, something that would be so big compared to where we are now. And, and, and there are, there's a lot of macroeconomic activity in between here and there, right? That's the United States staying in a deep and dark recession. Modern monetary theory, Congress enacting socialism, paying people to stay off, um, out of work. That means that we're going to have an economic cataclysm, that this is going to be the most drawn out recession that we've seen in a long time, such that they would double the national debt. But if something like that happens, then there's a good chance that we end up being a weaker nation comparatively speaking to other nations such that there is an opportunity to displace the dollar. But as things stand right now, the rest of the world is more messed up. I mean, do, do you see that continuing or do, like what, what's your assessment of like the trajectory right now? It seems of like everyone is growth? just trying to deal with it. Yeah. Well, global growth is, is a tricky situation, right? Because, uh, We've had a a saturation, if you will, of the urbanization process in China, even though China is only 17% of global GDP, let's say. The swing factor, the marginal drive, if you will, uh, of global growth has been China for a generation as they've brought millions and millions and millions of people out of the countryside into their cities built out the infrastructure to accommodate them, built out a middle class that has, in in turn, the ability, the pricing power to go out and buy things and become a consuming nation, not just an exporting manufacturing nation. So the reason I go through all all of this detail is that you have to find something to replace China in order to maintain global growth at the levels that we had seen before. Because the corona crisis has been so, so devastating for India, so devastating, you are going to see a major setback in the ability for India to become the next China, if you will, because the infrastructure needs in India uh, are, are immense. The investment opportunities there are also immense. The population is obviously gigantic. The demographics are better. The educational system, the educational attainment in India is also very good. However, the corruption in the government and how the coronavirus has been Uh, has been handled by the government is going to set India back for a while, which means that all of the countries that have depended on China for their exports, whether you're talking about Chile or Brazil or Australia or a large part of of Southeast Asia, they're going to continue to be dependent upon China uh, to buy their resources, but China's not going to be able to grow at the same rate it was. So we will have a continued sclerosis, if you will, across the global spectrum. There will be winners and losers here and there, especially countries that benefit from from countries who want to, from companies that want to move their uh, production capabilities outside of mainland China. So there will be pockets in the emerging markets, especially in Asia, uh, that win. But the devastation of the coronavirus in South America and in Mexico, these are major trading partners, uh, is going to set back global growth for some time to come, leaving the onus on the United States to pick up the global economy. Yeah, I'll add on to the saturation of the urbanization in China. There's also, um, would you say, a saturation of just the debt, the ability for China to take on more debt to expand, continue to expand. And where India has less 
less debt so they can maybe finance more expansion? That is certainly the case on paper. Um, but the way China handles its financing is by gunpoint. And if, if they need to find a new outlet uh, in order to create debt, uh, a few years ago, they said, okay, well, we, we've got a bunch of bad debt. We need to find a place to park it. So they created a municipal finance market, a municipal bond market like, voila, out of thin air, because they can, they're officials, and they can control their economy. I mean, I hate to get in the face of some major hedge fund guys who are like, it's ending, the world's over, short it all, the banking system in China is going to blow up. No, not really. It can be a managed decline. I think China is now introducing private equity. So because they have resources still, uh, and because of the way that they put monetary policy and put economic policy out there, again, by effective gunpoint, they can buy themselves more time than we think they can, but they're going to be most, most focused, focused on shoring up their domestic economy and the implications for exporting nations into China, therefore, are grave. And again, I speak to South America, I speak to Australia, et cetera. Australia is about to go into its first recession in 40 years. I'm sorry, in 30 years. India is going into its first recession in 40 years. It sounds like when you're describing the the future state of China and maybe even the U.S. is like this kind of grinding down, uh, deflating. Um, do you see deflation or inflation? You know, kind of in these major uh, markets. Well, you've got you've got competing you've got competing elements here, right? Because if you're going to, I mean, we have to remember you have to put things in context. In the post-war era in the United States, the highest unemployment rate that we have seen is 10 percent. That was the peak of the global financial crisis. So in the post-war era, we've never had unemployment, the likes of which we have. If you talk to people like the China Beige Book, my buddy Leland Miller, if you talk to people on the ground in China, they say that unemployment is somewhere around 15 or 20%. So because the U.S. is 75% consumption, because even China is 50% consumption, if you've got that level of unemployment, by definition, you've annihilated the pricing power of the consumer. You will have to have deflationary impulses because companies will not have an ability to pass along pricing uh, increases in pricing to the end buyer. One of the more frightening things that we're seeing today in the United States is companies are having to shore up their operations if they're going to survive and become a safer place to work. Uh, and a safer place to produce. And this is costing companies money. It's a fixed cost that's increasing while at the same time, they're not along, able to pass along these price increases. So what we're really flirting with right now, which is extremely dangerous, is, is stagflation. And that is the last thing you want to see where you have slowing growth and from the perspective of a producer or a company, rising costs, because that is the mother of all margin squeezes. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll tamper down on the ability of the economy to right itself. I had a question taking it back to the shape of the recovery, um, because we talk a lot about a Fed put. And um, Danielle, what do you see about like a W kind of a, a double dip here? Do you, th I mean, is the Fed then going to step in? Or is the, I guess the question is, what do you think about the Fed put? And uh, will it be in effect on this double dip? Well, I think that Jay Powell has been very uh, forthright in saying he's going to do whatever it takes. And, you know, 
he's not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. I, I, if, if you look at the fine print, it, it was kind of trending on Twitter a few weeks ago. If you look at the fine print of the agreement with BlackRock, the, the Fed has already got equities uh, built in. So all they need to do is launch another special purpose vehicle in order to start buying equities. I think the one thing that could possibly get in the way of the Fed put is the optics with 99 days until the election of launching a, a stock buying program on the part of the Fed, which many people would paint as being blatantly political, trying to keep Trump in office. And that's one misperception about Jay Powell that should be disabused. He's not political. And he's, he's never tried to do anything on behalf of Donald Trump, but rather he's trying to contain systemic risk that is built up in the, in the corporate debt market because he can't control it. That's the nature of systemic risk. That is what drives Jay Powell more than anything else. That is why he knew that the place to intervene was further out on the risk spectrum, one step beyond equities, which was junk bonds. So he understands where the risk lies. It's not in the stock market. It's in the credit market feeding back into the stock market. All right. So Danielle, you know, this is a Bitcoin Magazine podcast. We do do focus uh, on the Fed stuff. In our normal shows, we start by talking about headlines with the Fed, and then we wrap every show up with um, how this might affect Bitcoin or how Bitcoin might affect this type of a Bretton Woods 2.0 scenario. My question for you is on from a macro expert, a Fed expert um, point of view, not inside of the Bitcoin bubble like we are. Um, how do you view Bitcoin? Do you view it as maybe a gold 2.0? Uh, a concept might be that uh, central banks might use it as reserves in the future, or it could stand as collateral in repos or something like that. Um, how do you view Bitcoin from that uh, perspective? Well, so you would never see any federal or sovereign uh, entity step into Bitcoin. Uh, we know that years ago, China, Venezuela, and Russia started building out their own sovereign cryptocurrencies. And we know that, that Great Britain and all the developed nations are looking into their own sovereign currencies. So that is certainly going to be uh, part of the future. I think that there is a study right now. I had a Bitcoin scam inside of my Twitter account. I think they just shut it down today. Um, I, I think that from the perspective of governments, they're looking at two things when it comes to crypto. They're looking at security and they're looking at quantum because it's not an economical endeavor, if you're talking about on a sovereign scale, uh, and it's not secure enough yet. So I think that they're studying every hiccup, if you will, in the Bitcoin space and learning as they go, such that when FedCoin is introduced, that they're able to do it more economically and in and, and a, and, and a more secure manner. Uh, you know, my, my greatest fear when it comes to something like that is that if you consider the first three countries that entered into the realm, China, Venezuela, and Russia, it's clearly something that they're going to use to monitor their populations and monitor their activities. And uh, very, very not, not very often that I would actually agree with Jay Powell, but I would agree with Jay Powell in a speech he made some years ago in which he said, if there is to be a Fed coin one day, it would be equally anonymous to two individuals exchanging a $100 bill. And so I think that that should be the line of demarcation in between a sovereign cryptocurrency and what we have in the United States, because theoretically, we're still going to retain our liberty and not have... Uncle Sam peering into our accounts. But 
the thing about cryptocurrency that COVID has accomplished, if you will, is the acceleration, I think, of, of, a, of, of, of national pushes to get into the crypto space. Because, you know, people who are old like me are like, digital banking, ugh, no, I want to walk in and get a teller. Our viewpoint on that has completely changed. Now it's like, I want the telemedicine, I want my groceries delivered to my front door, and I want to do all my transactions digitally. And that is, that's been, been brought about by COVID. So I, I think that you could see an acceleration of, um, of efforts to push into sovereign cryptos uh, faster, than what we, faster than what you would expect. As far as how I see Bitcoin itself, there is no replacement for gold, period, end. Um, it is a finite by definition, uh, and I, I own gold. But I believe that Bitcoin is a rational reflection of the lack of discipline in monetary policy making. And I would be disappointed in your generation if your generation hadn't come up with something to express your equal dismay with the lack of discipline in monetary policy making. And I think that that is rightly what it is and how it should be viewed because we should be able to express the fact that 2% inflation eats away at the value of the dollar and that's a target. It's like a stated goal. I want for your currency to depreciate, as opposed to the only thing I've ever agreed with Alan Greenspan about, his inflation target in, the, in, the, in a perfect world would be 0%. And I completely agree with that. If you're, if you're a household or if you're, or if you're a business, the best place that prices can go is nowhere when it comes to the inflation that you have to stomach. So those are my views on Bitcoin. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on to FedWatch. Thank you so much for diving into this wide range of topics with us and uh, even kind of getting out of your comfort zone and, and chatting with us about Bitcoin. Um, really appreciate your time. Uh, for our listeners, where can they find you and learn more about the great information that you're putting out there? So uh, visit my website. We put out great research, Quill Intelligence. Oh, it's right behind me, quillintelligence.com. And I think now that I've got the Bitcoin scammer off my Twitter feed, follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. There's always an economic education every single day on my Twitter feed. So happy to have you come join me. Fantastic. Well, you guys can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Let us know who else we should have on the show next. We're looking to have other fantastic guests like Danielle to bring us amazing macro knowledge. Um, Ansel, where can people find you? Bitcoinandmarkets.com and the Bitcoin Dictionary is coming out in just a few days. So you can find that at bitcoindictionary.cc. All right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Danielle. Bye. Thank you. Take care, guys. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.